Coming to you from Helping Our Music Evolve in Nashville, this is the Quinn Spin. Hey now, and welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one and all, to a brand new edition of the Quinn Spin. I'm your host, the Quinn. I am back here on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, and more. For another rousing installment of the official podcast of Underground Music Collective, we've made it to the end of August. You just heard Revel 9's All I've Become, our opening theme song here at the Quinspin since the great year of 2014, and it will be until the end of time. Now let me tell you a little bit about today's guest, going to be joining me in a second, Taylor Berryman of the Poptimist Podcast. He's also a musician here in Nashville, bass player for a bunch of acts in and around town, also working on some solo stuff. But let me tell you... Why I was really excited to have Taylor on the show, because the word sugarcoat is not in this man's vocabulary. Taylor is one of the most honest people that I've met in Nashville about everything from life to the music industry and everything in between. And if you listen to The Poptimist, you will know that he is not afraid to go deep. He's not afraid to go deep on things he's observed here in the business. He's not afraid to go deep on himself and on the state of society and on human nature. He leaves no stone unturned. And I had the chance to be on The Poptimist earlier this year, back in the spring, and definitely wanted to get Taylor on because that was such a great conversation that I knew we'd have one here for you where you could learn about him a little more as well. So I'm going to take you right to it. Here it comes, Taylor Berryman of The Poptimist on The Quinn Spin. No more doing anything for free. Like, I won't. I won't. That's been something that's been a big shift for me this summer. It's just like prioritizing the things that are going to make money first because ultimately that's going to keep me in the game and keep me out of a cubicle. Yes. I'm not going back to a cubicle. I had a moment back in July where I almost folded and get, went back to the cubicle. I, I, I had a real gut check um, because there was just a lot of doubt creeping up. Then I had a really bad dentist appointment. I'm like, oh man, I need a lot of work done. I need stability. Yeah. You know, that lasted about three days. And then on the fourth day, we had a show at the five spot. And before that, I had a photo gig and I had a nice like $400 day. I'm like, no, I can do this. You know, I'm not. I'm not going back to that. I'm not going back to working some bullshit corporate job that I don't even like. Yeah. You know, no matter how much money I make, you know, at the end of the day, if I'm using half my day on something that just makes me want to bang my head against the wall, it's not worth it. Because by the time I get to this stuff, I've got no energy left. I've got no creative juice left at that point, you know? No, I, I feel the exact same way. It's like, I, I feel pretty fortunate in everything that I've been able to do in Nashville, but uh, it's been creeping into my mind. Like, should I get a job this winter? You mm. know what I mean? I've yeah. been Ubering for three years uh-huh. and that's what pays the bills. I right. do the podcast. I do all kinds of stuff, bass playing. And now I'm trying to do my own solo music. Yeah. So, but I'm just going to figure out how to not have a job. I just yeah. don't want one. I don't want to have to go somewhere and do it. And it's like, if, if there's ever a time where I have to do it, I'm giving myself a time limit. Mm-hmm. Like, Three months from this day, I'm, I'm quitting. Yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. jobs, they don't give a... F- Can we swear? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, they don't give a fuck about anything you have going on. Nope. They nope. don't care. They don't... They want you to serve them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, like, we, we get one life, right? Yeah. And, you know, I've done the back and forth between corporate America and taking the leap and corporate America and taking the leap. And every time I go back to corporate America... 
I end up wanting to take the leap again. So why am I going to belabor this? Why am I going to see what I've belabor seeing what I've got here with this whole ecosystem I'm trying to create by going back and sweating it out in corporate America for another two years. And then by that time, I'm 37, still trying to do this thing. Yeah. I'm going to be 35 in March. It's like, it's time to see what I've got once and for all. Yeah, no. You know? We're at a point, I think, where uh, we're not where we were, but we're not where we want to be yet. Exactly. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Like, I, I look back on my early 20s and all the shit that I've I've done, and I'm, I'm super proud of it. I'm, I'm glad I've made all, all the mistakes I've made. Oh, sure. Yeah. But- uh, there's some mistakes I know I'm not going to repeat again. Yeah, just, absolutely. Just from fucking up so much. Mm-hmm. Like that that's really I think when I got to my like started to get to like my mid 20s I was able to look back on some experiences that I had in my late teens early 20s and just figure out how to not do that again. Yeah. Yeah. See, I I got a late jump on all of this cuz I didn't start the show till I was 26. Yeah. You know, I was working in corporate America. And just I was in a lot that long term relationship and I just which I know I've referenced before on the show. So that shouldn't be new to the listeners here, you know, Um, you you know, and I was just kind of like trying to find my place and my purpose. And I did college radio. I listened to my old college radio shows one weekend. I'm like, I want to do this thing again, you know, and I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know. I don't even know my format. I'd like it to be similar to what it was. You know, some segments, some music, some segments, some music. And where am I getting the music from? I'm going to go on Twitter and find a bunch of bands who want their music featured on something. And to my surprise, there were a lot of them. I didn't know all this music existed. I didn't know this whole world existed until after I committed to starting this show. Yeah. You know, I knew nothing about the music industry. And I did. I got a late jump. So, like, where you made those mistakes in your teens early twenties, I was making the same ones in my mid to late twenties, Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, which, which is still young to start something though. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause uh, like the, the general American, uh, a deal with the whole thing of, of your twenties is it, it is about fucking up and making mistakes. And they say, you don't really know until you're 30, what you want to do. I felt pretty lucky early on to, uh, to figure it out. I knew in high school, I was like, I want to be a musician. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was going to do the podcast, the Poptimist until right. after I got to Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was really just shoot fire, like point a direction. Yeah. Ask questions later. Exactly. Exactly. And that, and that's how it is. And it's so interesting how that's changed culturally. Like used to be back in like our parents age, right? Like your twenties were where you had it all figured out. You know, you got the job, you were going to be there for 30 years. You got married, you had children, you know, American dream, you know, white picket fence kind of thing. Right. Yeah. How that's changed where now your twenties are one giant parade of mistakes, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) you know, and like how just like that shifted over the past few decades from like, no, your twenties is or where you get it all together and it's this fairy tale from there to the reality of no it's not a fairy tale it's never a fairy tale i think a lot of us you know grew up in situations where you know our parents were definitely not in perfect marriages but they felt they had to make it work because of the societal pressure because of the kids because of whatever because it was expected of their generation and the generations before them now it's like you're in your 20s you're trying different things, you're traveling, you're making mistakes, you're not committing because you know you're not ready to commit, at least deep down. Even if you say you're ready to commit to yeah. somebody, 
Chances are you're probably not because you haven't had the chance to figure out who you are in your mid-20s. No. You've just gone out of college, which you were told you had to go to growing up, and you've just started figuring out, like, hmm, maybe there are other ways and other experiences that I should be having before I just sign my life away into some kind of committed relationship, a marriage, a career. Oh, yeah. I, I don't – I never, bought, like, bought into any of that. Um. I was always just like, I'm going to do it my way, mm-hmm. and that's it. Yeah. I Because I, I've, I've never really been in, like, a long-term relationship mm-hmm. in my 20s. Um, and to be truthful, I have no desire for one. I feel like I get a lot of fulfillment out of the things I'm doing. If anything, I, I can get married and have kids when I'm 40 if that's something I decide I want to do. But right now, I have no interest in that. My life is pretty cool. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, uh, you know, being single, what it does give you is the opportunity to just create the life you want on your terms, you know. I'm a few years older than you, yes. you know, and so I'm I'm at the point where it's like, I don't want it for any societal reason. I don't want it for anyone else. Like, I want, I want a family for sure, yeah. you know. I want kids because I know I'm going to be awesome at being a father, you know, and I, I want that for me, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And I want that to... Because that's part of the life that I want to build. But before I do that, I feel like I still need to put certain things in place. You know, the last thing I want to do going back to corporate America is go back to some job just to pay the bills just because I have to because I have this family to support and be miserable in that job and then bring that misery home with me. You know, not saying that this whole UMC Quinn Spin live from the 615 ecosystem doesn't have its challenges because it certainly does. Yeah. But at least it's something that I'm creating. It's it's something that I find fulfillment in. And after eight years of doing this show and being on this ride, like I definitely still have those moments where I'm like, this is why I do it. You know, and, you know, even in gut check moments like earlier this summer, I'm like, okay, how much longer can I, can I withstand this? You know, those moments are short-lived compared to being on the path and being in the process and loving that process. The stress of doing things on your own is way better than having that job, life, relationship stress. Mm-hmm. Where I, someone's hovering. Yes. Hovering. Yeah. I, I feel a similar way. It's like I'm open to all those things, but I know I'm going to be kind of miserable if I don't do the stuff I feel like I'm going to do first. Right. And I just sell myself short. Mm-hmm. If you just check the box just to check the box. Oh, yeah. Which so many people still do. Like For sure. You know, I absolutely I have to, you know, it's funny because I'm on social media way too much <laughs> and I have to question every single time I see somebody posting 100 engagement photos, like how happy they really are versus how happy they're trying to project themselves to be. Like if your number one goal in life is to get married, just to say you're married you're going to have a rude awakening around your late 30s, early 40s. You're going to have that midlife crisis, and it is going to hit you hard. Yeah. You know, whereas if you're taking your time and you're understanding yourself first, then you're more prone to finding somebody that you can do life with, you know, that's going to be more aligned with your values. It's going to share similar values to you. And there's no need to show off because there's much more security in that, you know. I, you know, the, engagement photos to me are the biggest joke in the world because it's like why do you need to show off you know like hey look everyone i'm getting married please congratulate me please validate this thing that i'm doing this accomplishment let me tell you something getting married is not an accomplishment any idiot can get married what you know what an accomplishment is staying married happily 
for years and decades. That's an accomplishment. Getting married, I'm sorry, I'm not going to congratulate somebody on that. Just like I'm not going to congratulate somebody on graduating high school. Because most people do that too. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what it is? You know what's an accomplishment? is What do you do with it after that? That's where I'm at. Yeah, no, I I definitely feel that. I, uh, I was a horrible student in high school. Same. 1.9 I, GPA. Yeah, I was I was <laughs> something around that myself, mm-hmm. and I I never took it seriously. They always told me I was like fucking up my future. You don't mm-hmm. know what's going on. This like, standardized test is going to determine your future. Yeah, but all that bullshit is just really about the school and getting government funding. If yep. they have a certain number, you know, I, I grew up in like, I grew up in Maine, and it was it was a middle class town, working class kind of place. There was a Bowdoin College was there. I grew up in a town called Bowdoin. Oh, Bowdoin. Yeah, Bowdoin. Yeah. I so um, I went to, to high school. It was, there was like two groups of people. There was the people whose dad worked at like Bath Ironworks, which mm-hmm. is what my dad did. And then there was the people whose parents worked at Bowdoin College and who right. were professors and shit like that. Mm-hmm. So it was two very uh, different mindsets. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm really proud of my working class roots because it, it contributed to the way that I'm doing everything today. You oh, yeah. know, I, I would say my, my dad is probably the most influential person in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, just as far as like, he told me when I was young, when I first started playing music, he just said, figure out how to get paid for it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's what you want to do. Do it. Yeah. Cause he was out in the middle of February in a boatyard on a river in Maine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's miserable, you know, yeah. it's gritty, gritty, hard work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew I wasn't cut out for that. Right. That wasn't the life for me. Yeah. Um, and I was lucky to have someone reinforce that. But just like all that shit with like society and pressure, I've, I've never really felt the pressure maybe in a bad way, uh, maybe in a flawed way. Maybe this says something about me where I don't listen. I want to do the opposite of whatever I'm being mm-hmm. told yeah. to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And go against the grain. Yeah. I definitely have that that streak in me, <laughs> uh, you know, and I think I think I've I've got it a little more under control than I used to. You know, it's like I pick and choose my spots to go against the grain. But for the longest time, I was feeling that pressure to check the boxes, you know, yeah. the long term relationship I was in. It's like, OK, well, we're going to get married and have kids and you're going to move down here and be part of my family. And it's like, what about my goals? What about my family? What about all the things that I want for my life? I'm just supposed to give that up and go get a job doing some BS copywriting somewhere in Philly? No. You know, and it was it wasn't until 30 when that relationship ended that I'm like, "Well, wait a second. I don't even know who I am. I know that I have this music stuff that I really like, and I'm going to put 100% of myself into that." Okay, cool. Eventually leads me to Nashville. Eventually leads me to sitting here talking with you and all the stuff that we have going on. But for a long time, it was, you know, from 2013 to 2017, the end of that relationship, UMC, Lehigh Valley Underground, as it was known at the time, the Quinspin was always at odds with the expectation that eventually I was going to give it up. Not the expectation from me, but the expectation from so many other people in my life. And I got to age 30 and just decided, you know what? No, I'm going to, I'm going to lean into this and see where it goes. Go all in. And honestly, that's when the real growing pain started. Cause there was always that security of a relationship. There was always the security of another job. There was always just something to fall back on something to some kind of anchor, 
you know? Yeah. Keeping me on the dock. From 2017 to now, I've just been floating aimlessly at sea trying to find the next dock. Oh, dude. You know? But I wouldn't trade it for anything. No. You know? I, it's funny because I think in a lot of ways we've had the uh, the opposite experiences, but we've gotten to the same place. Yeah. Um, because I was like habitually single in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Never focus on having a relationship. When I was working a job, I've worked dead end jobs for sure and, and got trapped in them. Mm-hmm. But I always knew I was like, this is only temporary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You could uh, always quit it, find another source of income. Oh, yeah. I, and I've walked out of jobs like mid shift if they've just said something I didn't, I didn't like. Mm-hmm. Like if I disagreed with them on something, I'll take a stand. Mm-hmm. And if they say this is going to be a problem, I'll say, well, look, it was nice knowing you. I'm out of here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing this anymore. Right. I, and I have no problem doing that. I think people get so caught up in, in having a job and just having security, you mm-hmm. know, and it's like the relationship thing. Mm-hmm. There are benefits to being in relationships for sure. Yeah, yeah. But if you don't know who you are, it's going to cause a lot of problems. Exactly, because you're going to start leaning more and more on that person, becoming codependent on them. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's so important to maintain your individuality in a relationship. And in my long-term relationship, that went both ways. You know, there were definitely conversations that I had with her where she was struggling to really find her way, you know, professionally and whatnot. I'm like, well, what do you want to do? I want to be with you. I'm like, but if I were to say, like, uh, that's not your goal here, then she'd take that to mean, well, you don't want to be with me? No, you need to find your way. You need to figure out what you want out of life, and we need to support each other in that. It can't be leaning completely on one person or another and then expecting you to get a job. Yeah. Expecting me to just kind of fall in line because the family's expecting that and all your friends are getting engaged and this, that, and the other thing. Like we need to have our own thing. We need to bring those things together to the table and move forward together. That's how it works. That's how I've come to understand it. Yeah. Oh, but you know, here's the other thing. Okay. So our society basically coaches young women to go down that path. Mm Mm-hmm. Of to be dependent on a man, mm-hmm. and it's fucked up. It is, you know, it's not, it's not fair. Um, but the the other thing is, uh, and this is a, this is an unpopular pinch, uh, opinion, but I feel like we're going against nature now. Mm-hmm. How so? Well, in a lot of different ways. So for starters, I feel like the the weakest in our society are now running our society. Interesting. So like. It can be any number of things like people freaking the fuck out about COVID where it's like, okay, it's a situation. Mm-hmm. I'll acknowledge it's a situation, Yeah, but people screaming and crying and it's, it's from both sides. You mm-hmm. know, it's not just any one political party or anything like that, Yeah, but everybody thinks they're so goddamn superior to one another. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and they're all coming from a place of scarcity and insecurity in their own beliefs because they're afraid to have their beliefs challenged. Well, no matter what, you know, I think it comes, a lot of it comes down to nobody wants to be proven wrong in any way. Yeah. No one has any idea what's going on either. Like it's been a moving target this whole time with COVID. Yeah. The one character I relate to on, on any show, I would probably say is Negan from the walking dead. Do you know (laughs) Negan? No, I don't. Okay. So Negan, he runs, he runs a cult basically, but his whole thing is restoring order into society. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we need rules. If we don't have rules, there's a social contract broken right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In America, especially, mm-hmm. where we have no respect and no decency for each other. And the second that 
that uh, that veil drops a little bit, people lose their minds, right? Because it's not not a part of the program, right? Right. Now, do you think do you think social media? What do you think social media does to that? Well, it just empowers weak and insecure people. It's like we can go back to talking about the engagement photos, and I don't think everybody <laughs> who's getting married, you know, that the, there's nothing to each their own. Yeah. But I think social media definitely plays a role in it because uh, people can just shriek online about whatever it is they believe. But they also don't really give a fuck at the end of the day. Like right. if, if you sat down one on one with someone, the conversation would be very different than what they post. Absolutely. Because it's way easier to say something online with no face to face consequence. Yeah. You know, and the whole phenomenon, if you will, of if you don't like it, unfriend me, or if you don't like it, I'm going to block you. Like, what does that do to bring people to the table? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. You know, there's so much, and you're right, from both sides, there's so much just hate being spewed without the thought of, okay, what is, what is spewing this, what is spewing this hate actually doing? It's only driving a divide further. There's no consideration for understanding the other side. No. You know, and it's so easy to just have these quick hitting interactions on social media and let that be that and not actually continue a constructive dialogue. I don't think that'll ever happen. I accept now that this is the state of humanity. There's a great Sturgill Simpson lyric, compromise is made out of peace, but history is made out of violence. Hmm. And I really believe it's true. And it's like you take someone like Negan from The Walking Dead, he's someone who who lives that and understands it. Mm-hmm. Like th- there's a there's a lot of people who hate uh, hate his character, but I think he's the most realistic about human nature. Mm-hmm. Everybody deep down, as much as they want to pretend, we're we're self motivated, mm-hmm. and that's not a bad thing, right? You know, I I think that that's a good thing, and that's a, a super unpopular opinion too. But basically, Negan rolls up uh, when he first appears because someone. Killed some of his dudes. Uh So right away, he's like, I have to kill some of your people to make this even. Mm -hmm. There needs to be laws and rules in our society. Right. I I think on the self-motivation point, I think it depends what you do with that self-motivation. You know, are you trying to better yourself so that you can then give back and make your sphere of influence better? You know, for sure. Absolutely. Are you self-motivated to be completely selfish and step on everyone else as long as you have what you want yes there's definitely a balance to it you can't just go around being a complete cock to people to get ahead and there Mm. are plenty of people (laughs) in east nashville especially that will shake your hand and knife you in the gut at the same time and they're on the same level as you Mm -hmm. like they have really nothing to gain from it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but yeah i uh I, I've just learned, like, I'm just trying to do the things that I'm doing and just try and do them good and treat people right. Exactly. That's all we can do. That's all we have control over. Yeah. And be morally comfortable with what I'm doing. Yeah. How, like, how how are, how are you showing up every day? You know, at the end of the day, like, how are you showing up? How are you taking care of yourself so that you may then take care of the world around you? Right. But it all starts from within. It all starts from how we're showing up individually in our own lives every day, how we're taking care of business for ourselves. Cause if we don't have, you know, it's, that's a whole thing. You can't pour from an empty cup, you know, like if we don't have our affairs in order, if we don't have our lives together, we can't then go and do the work out in the community. We can't then go and make our sphere of influence, our world, a better place. Right. Mm-hmm. So what, what's something, 
what's something that you do to, I guess, keep your cup full? Well, for one, I would say the optimist. Mm-hmm. I, I like I believe in people, so I, that's why I have them on. Mm-hmm. Talk to them on the podcast about whatever it is they're doing. Yeah, I guess in my personal life, it's just I don't really know. You know, I I, I tend not to to overanalyze or think about things like that too much. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of riding the wave as it comes every single day mm-hmm. and seeing where it goes. Cause it's, it's definitely easy to be, I'll get into like a really critical mindset sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've learned as, as I've gotten older, that, that critical mindset is due to my own inner voice mm-hmm. of being critical of myself. Right, right, right. I'm tough on myself. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. I call myself out on my bullshit. Yeah. And I always try and be self-aware of that. So I guess one way I do it is I just try and be aware of like how I'm talking to people that I'm mm-hmm. working with. Yeah. Cause I tend to just be very cut and dry about whatever it is that yeah. Yeah. I'm working on. Like I have no emotion about it. Right. You have an interesting point there about, you know, we do project our own insecurities yeah. <laughs> on a people 100% all the time. And that's something that I think like, that's something that I think I've really internalized recently. You know, I did, um, I did rapid transformational therapy, RTT for short earlier in the summer. And, you know, it was at a point where I was feeling particularly low and unsure of myself and, you know, battling with self-worth. And I realized like how much I was doing that, you know, how much I was projecting, you know, my own insecurities onto my relationships, onto just on other people, you know, and finding the things that I judge in myself in other situations, sometimes creating them, you know, without, without there actually being any evidence or merit of the, of it being there. And it's, realizing that for me has helped me catch it a lot better, you know, has helped me catch it, you know, like if I start to judge somebody or something i I then am able to stop and be like hey look is that what part of me is in this you know what i mean you know the the engagement photos thing for example you know there's a part of me that's like all right well i'm just kind of judging it because i'm not there yet you know because i'm not doing it sure yeah no it's it's important to be self-aware yeah I, i i don't now i still think that you know it shouldn't be your goal in life to show off and flaunt that kind of thing. You know, there should be some substance behind it for sure. And in a lot of cases, I don't think there is, but part of it is, I guess, a jealousy, you know, um, which, which is interesting. Cause I'm just kind of realizing that now here on the air live on the Quinn spin. Well, Hey, you know, it's, <laughs> there's something to be said, said for that though. It's like, mm-hmm. I, I get that to a certain degree. I think I, I used to, to feel that way. Mm-hmm wrapped up in my own insecurity about like not being in a relationship or why is this not something I want? Mm -hmm. I think that's something I really struggled with. I'm like, why, why is it something that I'm not even worth? I see worth pursuing right now. Mm. Yeah. And I had to get to a point of acceptance where I'm like, well, I'm doing shit and I'm trying to lead a cool life Mm -hmm. and I would rather be successful and lead a cool life and then have a girlfriend as like a bonus. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, it all comes down to setting up that life and ha- being fulfilled and secure in that. Yeah. You know, because as that goes, so goes everything else. You know, having that sense of stability and security in yourself is only going to help you spread the light to the world, as it were. I do want to talk more about the Poptimist, of course. So you're at about 110 episodes. It's right close now? to that. It's not so, quite that yet. Yeah. I think I posted 108 mm-hmm. this week. Yeah. 
So you'll be at 109 two days after this episode comes out on Monday. Yeah. If you're listening to me speak right now, there's a good chance that you're a musician, a content creator, some kind of entrepreneur. Whatever the case, that means that you're a business owner and all business owners need to have a system for managing their finances. And I will be the first to tell you that this was absolutely terrifying to me at first. And that was until I spoke with Dan Bobick of MoneyWorks Financial Coaching. MoneyWorks Financial Coaching helps early to mid-career singles and couples organize their finances. Dan works individually with clients, like you and me, to build a personalized system for effectively managing their finances so that they can live and give with joy and confidence. After I consulted with Dan, I can tell you I was no longer terrified by the money conversation. Dan's approach and demeanor gave me the peace of mind and reassurance I needed to feel like I was in control of my finances and that they were on the right track. My relationship with money has improved exponentially and I now move forward with more confidence in my business and my life. You can schedule a free consultation by going to moneyworkscoaching.com. I guarantee you'll gain confidence and perspective on your finances and when you do, you can use my coupon code. It is UMC5 at checkout for a 5% discount on MoneyWorks Financial Coaching Services. Again, that is UMC5. Head to moneyworkscoaching.com. Talk about the show a little bit and kind of how it came to be, first of all, and how you've seen that evolve over time. Well, uh, it came to be because I impulse quit a job mm -hmm. and I just got a new apartment uh -huh. living on my own in Nashville. Um, I lived with a roommate for like the first six months that I was here mm -hmm. and I hated the fucker. Mm -hmm. I did not like him. He was a weird dude. But I get my own place. I'm miserable at this job I was working. It was at a logistics company. Mm -hmm. So I quit that. And um, yeah, I just decided I was going to start a podcast mm -hmm. uh, and talk about music. Um, and that was the intention early on was just to talk about music. And uh, like it's evolved since I've been doing it because this year has really been the first year I've been taking it serious. Mm -hmm. um, I'd always kind of done it in the background um, whenever I wasn't working on music stuff, basically. Mm -hmm. And once it became a main focus, it definitely started changing because I've only missed one or two weeks so far this year. Yeah. And the numbers have all gone up. So it's been a rewarding process to see that. I've also started booking guests that aren't music related. Mm -hmm. Like I had on this guy, George Collins. He's a porn and sex addiction expert. I had on Dr. Wendy Walsh. She is uh, an evolutionary psychologist. And we talked about the science of dating and mating. Mm-hmm. I had on Nick Faluca from the Frozen Pizza Company, Screaming Sicilian. In this week's episode, if this is so, this is going up next week. Mm -hmm. um, this week's episode will be with uh, Casey Coleman. He pitched for the Cubs. Oh yeah, yeah and he yeah, also yeah. pitched for the Royals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I mean, really, with the with the Poptimist, it, it's evolved in that way. Like as far as the variety of guests, and now there's also episodes with just me and Millhouse, the producer of the show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we just kind of shoot the shit. We're all kind of monologue a little bit mm -hmm. about whatever's on my mind. Yeah. Yeah. That week. And those have been particularly powerful. I did listen to one of those uh, episodes with just you and Milhouse. I think it might have been episode 93 where it got deep and it got really personal. And that's one thing yeah. I really appreciate about you, Taylor, is you're not afraid to just 
completely open up. I honestly wish I had more of that. Like I'm working on that. Well, it's, <laughs> so where it's, it's just like, this is me. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking here. And now here it is. Cause I think like so many people, especially in this space, they're extra careful. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to put anybody off by what they're truly feeling or truly thinking, oh, yeah. you know, or what they're going through at the moment. You know, I've had so many people in the entrepreneur space tell me like, Oh, well you, you let people know what you went through after the fact. You know, and after you came up with a solution to crush it, it's like, that's not real, man. No. That's not real at all. It's like, hey, yes, I'm doing this. And by all appearances on social media, I'm kicking ass. But there's all this going on behind the scenes, going on up here in my head that just like any other human being, I've got to deal with. 100%. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I think it's it's funny you say that because I'm much less inclined to open up like that unless I'm in front of a microphone. Mm -hmm. Like those are the times I feel like I'm most open and most honest and I can, I can get real as fuck. I I know the episode you're talking Mm -hmm. about, it was resentment and other drugs. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it got fucking real as fuck. Cause I just talked about how, uh, like resentment is, was a poison for me for a long time. Yeah. No matter who it was that I resented, whether Mm -hmm. it was, uh, my mom or my biological father, um, Cause I've, I've had, you know, everybody has a story in life yeah and like the kind of trauma that I experienced when I was young was, it was pretty brutal. You know, my mom is a drug addict. I haven't talked to her in three years. Mm -hmm. My biological father left when I was probably like five or so. And he was also a drug addict Mm -hmm. and he was a, a crooked cop who got kicked off the police force whenever they did like a psych eval on him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he had done this huge cocaine bust and he had kept all the cocaine and started dealing it. So he just spiraled. Yeah. So addiction runs in my family. That resentment, the root of all addiction is resentment, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, So I was just noticing a lot of those things in myself, uh, those, those kind of qualities taking place. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I wish I could honestly be more open and, and, not that I'm not honest with my family, but I wish I could be more open with them in the way that I am on the mm-hmm. podcast. It's almost like this release when I finally get to talk about that yeah. shit because mm-hmm. I'm always so scared to to do it. I'm afraid of hurting their feelings, you know, because I do have I have a great family now. You yeah, know? I don't have a typical family fucking situation. Mm-hmm. It was like um, my stepdad who adopted me when I was young. He is my dad. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He's the only father I've ever known. Yeah. It was like I I got to inherit him. You right. know what I mean? I was mm-hmm. I was seven when he came into my life, and he's yeah. always loved me, taking care of me, mm-hmm. taught me right from wrong. Yeah, um, and really instilled having morals and values, and just like the hardship builds character. Mm-hmm. And um, my aunt Janie and uncle Steve are also here in Nashville, mm-hmm. so I mean they were instrumental in me getting to do things in Nashville. Yeah, like. My grandma also lives here. My mm-hmm. grandma gave me her car after like six months. She wasn't able to drive anymore. You yeah. know, the typical grandma story. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I wish I could be more revealing with them in the way that I am on the Poptimist. Yeah. I, I, I go through the same thing. And I think to a degree, any of us who put a microphone in front of our face and talk, you know, to the ether, there's some sense of community and camaraderie we want to find out there that we're not quite getting <laughs> in our personal lives. Like I can tell you, my family doesn't listen to this show. They yeah. never have in eight years. They never have. And it's just like, 
so I feel I've, I've finally made peace with that on my end. And I finally just felt a lot freer, especially over the past few episodes. Just be like, fuck it. This is me. I'm going to curse on the air now. Well, I don't care. You know, <laughs> I would be, I would feel embarrassed if my family listened to my show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's because I am really revealing a lot of the things that I think and feel, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just, I, I have, I have trouble with that sometimes yeah. like communicating what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Now, why do you think that is? Due to my fucking childhood. Yeah. I mean, I was dismissed by my mom anytime I had any kind of need. Mm-hmm. Um, after my biological father left, she remarried a guy who beat her every night straight for a year, who was an alcoholic. So that that's ages zero to seven for me before my dad came into my life. Yeah. Wow. So I, I really never felt like anyone gave a fuck about me. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard for me to accept love. You know, I have I do have a great family system of all my my dad's family that's here and they're very loving to me and they, they want more of me and I I want to I want to give it to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? I like I, I've never had that before because even my mom's family, everyone was super isolated. Mm-hmm. Like no one got along. We wouldn't hear from three or four years and then they'd be like, oh yeah, I'm in town right now mm-hmm. doing something else. You want to see each other? Yeah. So that was the kind of the way that I grew up. I grew up super isolated away mm-hmm. from everything and everyone. Yeah. So I never really learned how to con- connect with, with people. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think I did in some kind of way because I've always been a go-getter and like a happy-go-lucky personality. Mm-hmm. But there was this phase in my early 20s where I had to undo all this shit that I, I had learned for survival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, deepening connection is hard. You know, I, I think, you know, as somebody else who's, you know, out there doing the thing and meeting a lot of people, it's really easy to, like, make those surface level connections with people, right? Like, hey, you're in music. I'm in music. Hey, we're at the same bar. Whatever it is, like, it's easy to make those surface level connections, but to let people in truly and let them know what you're thinking, you know, and kind of cast aside that fear of judgment, the fear of abandonment we might have, whatever it is, like, that's difficult. Yeah, man. I mean, then this is, this is perhaps dealing my own shit about, uh, revealing my own shit about relationships. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of the women that I've dated have said, you know, they don't really ever feel like they know me in a way Hmm. and that they, they, Again, they don't know what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. Yeah. And I don't communicate that kind of stuff. Like it's some big secret. But I learned young um, in the environment that I was in not to do that. Right. It was a response to that. It mm-hmm. wasn't so, it was like learned uh, subconscious behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just something that's a part of me now. So I have to make an active effort in order to, to do that. Same, same. You know, I, I, in the process of doing RTT and everything, I realize how emotionally unavailable I am, especially in romantic situations, because I don't want to get hurt. You know, I've been afraid of that. Oh, yeah. My life. I've been afraid of even approaching the issue of, hey, I'm interested in pursuing this because in my history, you know, to my knowledge, it never ends well for me. No. You know? And so... I can think of quite a few situations where that's actually come back to bite me, where like somebody was open and willing, you know, and I didn't make it known enough that so am I, but hey, I'm actually kind of afraid of this. Not kind of, I am afraid of yeah. this, you know, and it's like, I don't know, like, do you admit that you are? Is that is that a good better way of starting the conversation than just keeping it in and hoping they make the first move? Probably, you know, but- 
you also then there's the fear of judgment that comes into that and like oh well you know what if this is just too much for them to handle or what if i'm not enough because i'm afraid of expressing my emotions here you know well as as men we're we're not we're not supposed to from a societal standpoint. Oh, toughen up, toughen up. The well, toughen it's, up thing. it's that too, but mm-hmm. we have all of this bullshit now of where they do talk about men and men's mental health and everything like that. But we really don't have a lot of like positive forms of masculinity in our culture. I would say maybe someone like the rock, the, oh, rock, yeah. the rock is a positive form uh-huh. of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And or, John Cena along with that. I yeah. Think John, John Cena, John Cena yeah. even though he bitched out to China, um, <laughs> Joe Rogan, you know, mm-hmm. which, uh, a lot of people slander Joe Rogan too. Cause they, they, but young men don't have examples. Well-balanced, well-reasoned, individuals who are able to see everything objectively yeah from the middle you know and that's i i do appreciate that about joe rogan um he will have somebody who's far right like a ben shapiro on the show but then he'll have somebody far left on his show. yeah so when he has the far right person all the far left people are losing their minds and vice versa when he has the far left person all the far right people are losing their minds he's doing it to approach things from an objective lens, you know, to get the different points of view and let you decide, which by the way, that used to be what journalism was, not this bullshit you see on cable news now. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to present this viewpoint. Then I'm going to present that viewpoint and I'm going to let you make up your mind because that's how conversations are supposed to start. That's how we're supposed to reach compromise and come to the table in this day and age where that idea is so unpopular in the mainstream. Somebody like Joe Rogan gets eaten alive, which is really unfortunate. He does, but there's also this element too. Any show on CNN, he gets more downloads per episode than they have viewers, mm-hmm. and like that—that's my whole thing for doing my own thing too. Where I'm like, I don't feel like I'm a part of the music industry at all. Interesting. Like I don't feel any connection to like the there. There's people I have a connection with. Like I'm really great friends with the Weird Sisters. Mm-hmm. I'm great friends with the the Reveal and Josh Norfleet. Mm, and yeah, all, all those people. And um, I love them very deeply, and, and they're great friends of mine. But outside of that, I don't really feel like I'm, like, clicked in to right. the, the scene. Right. You know, because I've just been off in my own world doing the podcast mm-hmm. this whole time. And uh, no one's really given a fuck about it. And any time that I've met – I've had major label artists on my podcast mm-hmm. before. Yeah. But they're always – they always fucking end up being episodes I don't release because the label hits me up and they're like, what did you talk about? Because mm-hmm. we're talking – real like we are right now yeah. just about what we're thinking and what we're feeling and they always get scared and i know when i get one of those emails i'll like tell them what we talked about and if they don't respond i just don't put it up mm-hmm. fuck you you insult me you know they don't know what the show is because here's the other thing all these industry people i am on a list of 1000 platforms that they need to promote and they have to hit a quota mm. to get their artists promoted and right. it's like if you if you got into the gauntlet with me and you didn't you weren't aware of what you're getting into. In my interviews, I never light anybody up or put them on the spot or anything like that. But everybody's so goddamn afraid to say what they think about something now. Mm-hmm. And that's not how I roll. Right, right. And that's a, like as somebody who runs a platform too. It's like I want to work with the people who've done the research into the platform who know what this is. You know, whether it's this show, whether it's UMC in general, like. I don't want to just get the press release that you've sent, you know, blind copy to 30 other 
publications. Exactly. I want you to reach out to Underground Music Collective and let me know that you've researched Underground Music Collective and you want to be featured in Underground Music Collective. That's what I want because that's how we're going to build a relationship. That's how we're best going to help each other win. I want to help people win, yeah. but I want to know that I'm not just another thing to put in their EPK. I mean, please put the article in your EPK. Yeah. But also like... Let's build a good working relationship. Let's become friends. Let's help each other because we need to help each other in this industry. You know, especially at the independent rungs where we don't have the major label support. We don't have the financial backing. It's us. You know, whether you're a musician, whether you're a content creator, whether you're a mix of both, we're all fighting that same battle and it's an uphill climb in a lot of ways. Yeah. And what I can't stand is people that are on the same level as us being beholden to all those people when they're afraid to say the wrong thing mm -hmm. and keep them from getting signed to a major label. You know, mm -hmm. I'm like, F fuck ever getting signed to a label. I will never sign to a major label ever, ever. I am control the controller of my own destiny at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And it was like my whole thing for starting the, the Poptimist too was, okay, it's hard to get people to listen to a three minute song. Yeah. But it's easier, way easier to get them to listen to a 45-minute or an hour-long podcast. Mm -hmm. So I can just drop the music in the podcast and have people listen that way. Right, right. And Anchor enables that now, too, where well, if you don't have advertising activated, you could just drop the Spotify stream of the song right in your podcast, which I can't do because I have advertising activated, you know, because I like making that scent for every listen we get. But, uh, you know, every scent counts, everyone. Listen to the show. Listen to all the back shows. But... Yeah, I mean, I share, I think, similar sentiments on the major label stuff, you know, as far as like covering major label stuff, I find often that nobody comes to UMC for that. So therefore, nobody cares, you know, like, oh, they don't give a fuck about us, dude. Quick, quick story. Uh, this is back in Pennsylvania. Great band, Ex Ambassadors. I, I really, I really enjoy them. I had a chance to our first music fest in Bethlehem. I had a chance to get a photo pass for their show, their main stage show at Music Fest, uh, which Music Fest is the largest free outdoor music festival in the country. But they also have a main stage with national touring acts, and so I'm like, oh, this is gonna put LVU as it was at the time on the map. We get to cover a main stage show at Music Fest. I took photos the first three songs. Uh, what's your over under on how many views that article got uh, for the rest of 2016? I'm going to say 119. Five. Five. It was one of the worst performing posts of the year. You know why? Because people don't come to Lehigh Valley Underground at the time, Underground Music Collective now, to find out what their major label artists are doing. They come to find out what your locals, what your independent, your regional artists to a degree are doing. So that's where it kind of clicked in my mind. I'm like, well, why am I going to like invest into covering that kind of stuff when nobody cares? Nobody comes to us for that. But, you know, you cover all the free stages with the local, the regional, even the national touring acts that are not as well known that are still independent. They eat it up. They share it out. Oh, my God. Can I share your photos? Thank you so much. And it helps everyone. You know what I mean? Like, so I, you know. In the rest of my time in Bethlehem, before I moved here for the rest of Music Fest, they'd ask me, because I worked at ArtsQuest, you know, I just went back and worked there for Music Fest earlier this month. And they're like, hey, do you want any, uh, you know, do you want any steel stage passes? I'm like, no, I'm just going to do the free, free stages. And my goal was to get better free stage coverage than anybody else in the region. And we did it every year. And it helped everyone, you know, as opposed to going and trying to chase that clout. 
going and trying to like, oh, well, if I cover this band, like maybe they'll retweet it and I'll hit it big. Like, I don't have time for that. I'd rather build this thing from the underground up, as I've always said, and let it shine from there. Yeah. Strength in numbers, you know, strength in community as opposed to like, please, Mr. or Mrs. Major Label Artist, please pay attention to me. Please give me credibility. No, I'm going to build my own. And well, we're going to build our own as a community. The, what those those major label people want to is for you to suck their dicks a little bit. And I just refuse to do that. Mm. Suck mine first. <laughs> <laughs> little bit of, a little bit of 69 going on there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's just, you know, that's the one thing that I honestly have a hard time with is like, you know, we all have to play the game to a degree, but when you're very obviously doing it just to shine up, just to be like, you're playing the game just to be maybe considered for an opportunity. I'm like, nah, I'll go out and build my opportunities. I'll I'll go out and earn everything I get. Like, I don't need somebody to grant me something. If I wanted that, I'd go get a job and ask for a raise. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, you're totally right. I mean, in the, the whole thing is to like, I, I never feel like I'll ever be granted anything in this life. Right. Um, and that I have to go out and earn everything that I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. But why would you want to be granted anything? No. Anyway? Yeah, no. I mean, because there's, there, and I mean, you see it too. There's a bunch of people who are just waiting for their turn in line. Mm-hmm. I got out of line and I'm like, I'm just going to make my own little thing and have people start selling like there's a lemonade stand over here mm-hmm. and they're selling 10 bucks well i'm gonna sell lemonade for five bucks mm-hmm. i'm gonna figure out how to cut the cost down and get people to come over here and have a better product mm-hmm. exactly you know it, there's uh the macklemore song Ten Thousand hours there's a line in there that goes you put those hours in and look what you get nothing that you can hold but everything that it is you know and it's like yeah you're gonna put a lot of work in you're gonna eat a lot of shit you know, and you're going to, you're going to have to take a lot of no's, you know, you're going to have to get a lot, deal with a lot of rejection and a lot of hard work, you know, a lot of difficulty, but you have those moments, you know, kind of like I said before, where it's just like, but this is why I do it, you know, because I built community with these people because I was really able to help here because I was really able to build this thing that, yeah, it's not big. It's not glamorous. Kelly Clarkson's not interviewing me, but look at what it is. You know, it's actually something it's actually real. Yeah. You know, and that to me matters way more than getting on the today show. I'm not going to say no, if the today show comes calling, but I'd rather go come on the Poptimist and be asked actual, interesting, non-softball questions. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know 100%. I mean? No. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's like, I feel like if I had the opportunity to do any of that shit, I would probably do it, but I would have to troll it for what it is. <laughs> like I would, I would make sure that they would never ask me back on again. That would be my whole goal with doing any kind of big mm-hmm. publication or platform, maybe other than Joe Rogan or any mm-hmm. cool podcast. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I ever got lucky enough to do something like that, but if like just those opportunities, those people, they're fucking soulless, man. The the major network stuff, yeah. Like I just like. As a journalist, too, I can't watch the interviews. It's painful. There was one that I was watching one night, because you might not know this. You probably wouldn't expect this. I'm a big New Kids on the Block fan, believe it or not, because I have really? I have an older sister, so I wanted to be Jordan Knight growing up. Yeah. They were on Regis and Kathy Lee, and like 
the, it was just so awkward because like the first time they were on Regis and Kathy Lee, like Regis was like making fun of the way they were dressed and everything on the show. And this is like right around the time, like all the media scrutiny was really starting to get to those guys. Cause you think they're five adolescent dudes who like were thrust into this limelight. Right. Yeah. The second time around they were asked to come back. Only John Knight would go back. The rest of them would not go on the show. And I watched that interview and it was like somebody's grandparents that they don't even like just awkwardly asking them questions at Thanksgiving dinner and John just sitting there like trying so hard to like say as little as possible, <laughs> you know? And it was just like, because, because he knew what was up. Those five guys knew what was up. Like they thought they were getting into this really East coast cool boys. Thing. Of course they knew it was up, you know, like, and that was like 1991, the, the time of that second interview, like right as that band was really starting to feel that pressure. They were only a couple of years for breaking up you know, for the first time before, you know, 14 years go by, they get back together in 2008. But like they were sick of all the garbage. You know, they were sick of all the scrutiny. And it's just like they just wanted to make music, man. Like they just wanted to make music and go on tour and do what they loved. And like they were getting hit from all sides, all this criticism in the media and they knew what it was, you know? And like, I, I respect them because they didn't get back together just to make the money. I mean, obviously they're still touring and, you know, selling out stadiums and everything, but they got back together because it was the appropriate time. They were never just going to do it to cash in. They were going to do it if all five of them were on board and they were doing it because the, the joy was back and like stuff like that just kind of took, you know, sapped the joy from the experience of them doing that, you know, through their meteoric rise. And then all of a sudden, Oh, grunge is big. We're not the hot thing anymore. And everyone thinks we suck now. So peace. You know, like they walked away and which I think, you know, looking back was the right thing to do. And then again, when you're older and you have more perspective and you're going to do it for the right reasons, that's when you go back out and hit the stadiums. You know, I have a lot of respect for them. I do. Yeah. No, I think uh, there's something to be, uh, to be said for kind of drawing from experience and going back to something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's just like the media and, and all of that shit, it, it feels like an entirely different world for me like the, mm. the way i always describe the way i feel in nashville it's like you know those uh those fish that eat off the sharks mm. that stay on the bottom of them uh-huh i feel like nashville is the shark and i'm the fish that's like eating all the parasites off of it uh-huh. you know mm. and i'm able to survive because of it right um i'm not a part of the system the shark might know i'm there it might not mm-hmm. doesn't fuck with me i don't fuck with it right Right. That's an interesting analogy. You know, it's like you're so close to it, but then so removed in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not in danger of being eaten. Right. Right. I I mean, that's the thing. It's just like there's something to be said for keeping your head down and doing the work, you know, and just do it, putting out the best work that you can put out for the reasons that you want to put it out, you know, and that's something that I've always tried to do too, because at the end of the day, it's like, I don't want to be doing this to seek someone else's validation. You know, I don't want to be doing this because, you know, and having somebody kind of guy like, Oh, well it should be this, or it should be more of this. No, it should be what it is. It should be what I'm putting forth and what the people I'm working with are putting forth. Cause it's real to us. I don't ever want to be in a situation where somebody's trying to tell me what the Quinn spin needs to be, what UMC needs to be. Oh yeah. Live from the no, no fucking way. dude. Because then it's not real to me. It's not fun anymore. You know? And like, I'm very careful now about the feedback I take because like there's validity in most feedback that you get, but is it right for you necessarily? 
absolutely not. And I had to really, over the course of this calendar year in particular, really think about the feedback that I was taking you know, to heart and thinking whether it actually served the mission and the vision of what I'm doing. A lot of, some of it did, a lot of it didn't was distracting me from what I actually am here to create. Right. And so you get a better sense of that as you go on, you know, and as you, as you go through the process, but it can be kind of jarring when you feel like you're losing your direction because of all these you know, because of people kind of pulling you in these different directions that they think you should go, you know, and that can really, if you're not careful, eventually that could be the undoing of whatever project it is. Oh yeah. It can, t- it can take the train off the tracks. It's like the first, second and third person I go to about what I'm doing is me. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'm open to listening to other people, you know, based on just like whatever they're doing too. It's yeah. like Isaac from the weird sisters. Mm-hmm. I'll always listen to anything he says about the Pothomist. Yeah. Because he, he'll give good feedback on the show. Mm-hmm. And most of the time he tells me, don't change anything. Just keep it the way it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, for the first 70 episodes, I didn't have a producer. I didn't have any of that shit. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have microphones. Right. I was just, I put my phone on airplane mode and did voice memos. Mm-hmm. And then eventually Millhouse came in. He became the producer of the show. Yeah. And he, he was like, you need to get microphones. Mm-hmm. And then I, eventually I did. And we started making it more like a produced show but by that point i already had a style developed right right and that's the thing like i used to be so precious about production and this that and the other thing there are tons of people doing that and creating content in that way there's a podcast that i really like called the angry therapist where literally he'll just be anywhere he might be in his studio or he might be at a diner and you'll hear all the background noise and talking into his phone while he's getting waited on you know it's just like he's saying what's on his mind it's kind of like stream of consciousness like he's a therapist but he's very you know he's he says he prefers casual over clinical and you kind of hear that in his style and approach to presenting the topics, whatever it is, mostly dealing with relationships, that kind of thing. And it's just so refreshing to, you know, in a world like therapy, that's usually so buttoned up. He's just like, nah, man, I go through stuff too. And here I am talking to you about it in a diner for 15 minutes. Oh, can I have another uh, Coke, please? Yeah, thanks. You know, like there's just something so authentic about that, you know? We're, uh, I think a lot of people, and I'm this way too, they're hungry for something real. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's ugly. I just want real. Yeah. Like I've, I've started watching the Sopranos. Have you watched the Sopranos? Not in a long time. My dad was a big, big fan of that show. It is fucking phenomenal. But I I was really, I think drawn to it just because it's real. Mm -hmm. And there's this director, his name's S Craig Zoller. He did the movie bone Tomahawk. He also did brawl in cell block 99 and dragged across concrete. Mm -hmm. And his movies are so gritty. Like, uh, I feel like, too, there's an element of we're denying what reality is, Mm -hmm. that bad things happen and that at the end we all die. Mm -hmm. And in his movies, front and center, that's what it is. Yeah. It's like sometimes they're good people, sometimes they're bad people, sometimes they're neutral people. Mm -hmm. And they're taking the opposite reaction of whatever it is you think they should be doing. Right. Or seeing them outside of their normal circumstance. Mm -hmm. That's what life is. Yeah, yeah. And this emphasis that that i think is starting to break down on the overly manufactured presence that that we must quote unquote create for ourselves right like it's starting to break down you know like i'm seeing 
fewer and fewer artists taking photos in front of the wings and acting like, oh, stream my new single. And more and more people saying like, hey, I'm dealing with this thing and this is what I wrote this song about. And I'd really appreciate it if you stream it because I'm dealing with this thing. Yeah, You know, like there is a veil being broken down. I think we have a lot of work to do. I think definitely at the higher rungs in the industry, especially in certain genres, country, we need to present more real subject matter, you know, and not be so manufactured and pander to a certain audience, you know, about trucks and beer and sunshine. But and th- they will not do that, though, until they exhaust every resource. Oh, yeah. Doing the wrong thing. You, you look at mm-hmm. something like Napster mm-hmm. and streaming. When did really streaming start to get popular? Maybe what, like 2014, 2015? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They had an entire 15 years to get on the ball and they mm-hmm. refused to. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're, they're getting what they deserve, dude. I've, uh, yeah. My fantasy is uh, that I am the Joker and they're, they're Robert De Niro at the end of the Joker. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I come onto the show and just get what you fucking deserve. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that, that you, you make a good point there, too. Like, it will be milk dry, just like every other trend before that has been milk dry. You think of the boy bands of the 90s. You know, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were at the top, and then each one had diminishing returns from there. Same thing with those, uh, you know, teenage pop artists like Britney Spears, Christina. There are a bunch after them. Do you remember them? Maybe you remember Jessica Simpson. You might even remember Mandy Moore. Do you remember the rest? No. They were all cut from the same mold. That was milk dry. Then you go into pop punk, Blink-182, Top of the Mountain, Newfound Glory, Good Charlotte, and Green Day. Yeah. Well, Green Day was even before that time, I would say. But like, the major labels will just create this trend, and then they'll just milk it dry until it's exhausted, and then they'll create the next trend. You know? And... But it's not coming from a real place. It's not coming from a place of presenting art, presenting authenticity. It's how can we make money? And that's that's where I've always kind of been at odds with it because I always find that the best art being created, in my opinion, is the stuff that bucks that trend. Is the stuff that's not even focused on that. You know, that yeah, it might be commercially successful, but there's an element of reality to it. There's an element of yeah, we went our own way, even though the industry said we were supposed to go this way. Good example of that. You might be surprised to hear me say it is Bon Jovi in the early '90s, because they could have just gone grunge, right? They didn't do that. You know, they could have just stuck to their guns and stayed in the '80s hair metal thing, but they would have ended up. You know, like every other 80s hair metal band that did that, you know, kind of running that well dry, if you were. They started writing these longer form storytelling songs, you know, and it gave them new life. It gave them a second wind as the band. Then you get into the 2000s with the Crush album after the hiatus following these days. And it opened them up to a new generation of fans, but they never stuck to a certain after the 80s. And after they milked that cow and made their money, that's a band that just went and did whatever they wanted always commercially successful yeah you know and for the most of their career there was always some major label influence going on there but at the same time john was like you know what if i don't want to make this kind of music i'm not going to anymore you know and that's something that i've really come to respect you know and you see that you know in some of the pop artists today lady gaga got in made her money 
Now she can do whatever she wants. Yeah. She can make a jazz album. She can make movies, whatever. Taylor Swift's doing the same thing now. She got into the industry, you know, as her this, dad helped her get into her the dad industry. helped her get into the industry, which, you know, is something, I mean, she grew up 45 minutes away in Pennsylvania from where I lived for a few years. So I've gotten to hear all kinds of stories about that era of Taylor Swift. But what, what has she done with it since then? She's got a good business mind. I will give yeah. her that. She's I got, mean, she had the money backing. Mm-hmm to be able to have a career and she has some great songs. Yeah. But I will say the money backing is only going to get you so far. I agree. It's what you do with it. I, I use this example from the pro wrestling world all the time. The rock versus Teddy Hart, the rock third generation wrestler father was in the business grandfather, like the whole Samoan dynasty, like is tied to the rock somehow they're all related, right? If the rock showed up and didn't work hard and was a douche backstage, he would have never become The Rock. He would have never become this mega, the biggest movie star on earth. Teddy Hart, the Hart family, another wrestling royalty family. Teddy Hart, at the time he was signed to WWF at the time, was the youngest guy ever signed to the company. Was horrible backstage. Didn't put in the work. Now he's pretty much blackballed from every major promotion on earth at yeah. age 40. He had, they had the same advantages. As a matter of fact, I would even say Teddy Hart had more advantages because... The Rock's family never had that much money. Yeah, The Rock was the, bigger, the biggest superstar from that family. Exactly. But because of the work he put in, you know, yeah, he had the advantage of having that in to get into the business. Yeah. But it's what he did with it, you know? So I, I've come to view Taylor Swift in the same way, where it's like, yeah, she had certain advantages that you and I and most of the people we know could never even dream of having. Yeah. But if she wasn't good and if she wasn't gracious and if she wasn't committed to putting in the work, she wouldn't be ta- the Taylor Swift of today. I agree. I do agree. Um, I mean, there's only so much shit I can I can honestly actually talk about her. Right. Because she, she, she made an empire. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And she figured it out. And she's another one now. She can make whatever she wants. Yeah. Stadium bangers, folklore album, like, you know, and everything in between. She could do what she wants. All she has to do is release it at midnight without telling anybody, and it's going to sell yeah. tons and tons of copies, even in an age where music doesn't really sell. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, there, there's something to be said for that, you know, and just kind of like, yeah, you have to do what you can do. If you want to succeed at that mainstream level, you do what you can do to get in, yeah. right? But then from there, what do you do with it? Do you try to milk that trend or milk other trends? Or do you try to then put yourself into it? Because that's how you endure in this business. It's not, oh, well, I sound a certain way, so you know that's flash in the pan stuff. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, But it's... I sounded a certain way to start out, but look how I've evolved and look at how I've connected with my audience as an artist. Yeah. But also as a human being and all those examples I just named did that, you know, you might not even like their music, but you have to admit like the way they went about it was based on connection was based on some authentic part of themselves going into it. 100%. Yeah, no, I mean that there's, Tons of artists that are out there that it's not necessarily for me, but I can at least respect and be like, they they did something. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, one artist I really love, I'd say probably my favorite, you know, quote unquote Nashville artist is Sturgill Simpson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She said, fuck all of you. Mm-hmm. I'm doing what I want. Yeah. And has all the respect in the world from anybody who really knows music. Yeah. Knows the industry. It's real. Yeah. It's real. It's from the heart. And there's definitely that at the core of Nashville. You know, even, you know, with 
the major labels being what they are, even with the glitzed up appeal of Broadway now, you know, the very commercialized touristy sheen that's put over this city. The heart and soul is still there. Yeah. You know, and it's very much, and you see that, you know, you see that in the artists who get respect here, who are well-known entities here. But you also see that in the way the community will stand up, you know, when the chips are down, you know, you saw the tornado, you saw, you know, when Exit In was potentially being taken over or sold or whatever that situation was. I don't, I don't even know all the details of that situation. How people rose up and said, no, you're not taking Exit In from us. Like the heart and soul of Nashville is very important to the people who have either, either been here a long time or are spiritual natives in the sense of they really respect the city and came to it from the right reason for the right reasons, you know? And so I'm hoping over years and decades that that stays the way it is, you know? And I even think like, you know, I just saw something yesterday with these transportainment vehicles, like the city and like even the tourism departments, like, okay, enough's enough with these things. Like we got to start regulating this because it's just getting so out of control and it's becoming Vegas out there. And, Nashville, I think at its core, does not want to become that. Nashville wants to maintain its heart and soul. I just think... Too late. Well, I think there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, that's cute and all, but how do we make money off of that? You know, and it's this battle. It's this battle. And we're going to keep fighting that battle. And hopefully, hopefully we can stave off the glitz and the commercialization of the city long enough to, to win it. I don't know how. I I personally, I like it. I like all the tourism. I like people coming here. I think it's a a huge part of Nashville's character to have visitors. Mm -hmm. Visitors, yeah. 100%. But I think it's getting a little, maybe more than a little uh, excessive in terms of the party atmosphere, honestly. You know, that's really, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, and maybe this is just, you know, partially because I drive DoorDash to supplement and I can't stand getting stuck behind these stupid pedal taverns and all that. But it's just like, it's too much, man. It's too much. Like that has nothing to do with Music City. That's just a gimmick. You know, like, why is there, why is there a giant penis vehicle rolling down the streets? Oh, bachelorette parties. Well, let's cash in on that and make a giant dick and have it roll down Broadway. Like, that's just like, here's what I think. I've had enough of that. You know, (laughs) I think this is what we really are. This is what we really want. This is what people really want. A giant dick rolling down Broadway. Yes. (laughs) Give it to them. I mean, I don't know. Let's, let's not deny Let's not, Let's not deny that we're just cashing in. That's that's the way I I see it. I I don't I don't really mind it. Uh, I enjoy it. I think it's funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm also an Uber driver, so mm-hmm. I have to I have to drive the Woo Girls. They're personally they're very nice to me. You know, mm-hmm. I I I love the tourists. I I and I enjoy that they want to come here and they want to party and they want to enjoy Nashville. And is it the the touristy glitzy glammy version of it? Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. But you know what? It's better than them not coming at all. That's true. That's true. I mean, there's no denying that it does, you know, help keep the city growing, you know. 100%. I guess I guess if anything I just wish it was a little classier, you know, like some of the things. I wish it was more ratchet. Really? Oh yeah. yeah. Let's let's drop it down even another level. <laughs> how how would you do that? How do you go how do you go down another level from the giant dick mobile? 
The Oscar Mayer Wiener rolling up Broadway. I don't know, but I'll <laughs> I'll know when I see it. That's uh, there's there's no depths that this city could go to where I'm gonna be against it. Um I just want it I want it to be front and center. Okay. I want it to be real. Vegas East, pretty much. Oh yeah. Because we're already well on our way there. Yeah, we're on our way there. It's just we don't have gambling. Yeah. That's the only thing is if people spend all their money on booze here. Mm-hmm. Um but that's the other part. It's like people come here. People tell me all kinds of shit when I drive yeah. that they would never say in normal life. Interesting. And they just confess things to me. <laughs> Taxi cab confessions. Wasn't that a... That was an HBO show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's kind of what it is. You know, they'll, they'll go off on like whatever they think about religion, politics, mm-hmm. sex, whatever it is, yeah. you know? And they'll, uh, I mean, and all people are kind of different. The interesting thing about rideshare is that it's the great equalizer of our society. It's like McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Everybody has had McDonald's at one point in their yeah. life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody's taken an Uber or a Lyft at one point in their life. Right. Even if it was only one time. Right. So I kind of like it. I like it when the veil drops because, yeah, it's a party atmosphere here. Mm-hmm. But this was, this is the way that people would be all the time if they could be. So th- fair. Yeah. they they're they're finally getting to be what they what they perceive themselves to be and what they perceive their life to be. Do I disagree with it? Is it something I would do? No. Yeah, it's it's it, it's not me. You know, right. I don't go down to Broadway. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't pay nine dollars for a fucking Bud Light. Right. But uh, yeah, there is an element of real here, maybe in one of the ugliest ways, where it's like this is how people would behave if society dropped or there were no rules mm-hmm. the real you is the you on vacation yeah yeah that's true i actually you know having been out of town for two and a half weeks earlier this month like i i had a chance to think about that especially the portion that was spent with friends at the shore i'm like man i just feel more like myself than i've been all year because like there was no pressure to think of like okay what do i have to wake up and do it's just like i have to go to the beach that's it you know, have to go to the beach and hang out all day. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, what time are we getting to the brewery? Okay, we'll probably be there an hour later than that because we're all going to take our time, you know. And it's just like, yeah, that's a good point. People people are freer to be themselves, you know, in that kind of environment. And it's not necessarily uh, a bad thing per se, and it's not necessarily a good thing either. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it is. It depends it on the person whether it's a good thing or a bad yeah. thing. One hundred percent. Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. That's a, I hadn't thought about it that way, but thank you for opening my eyes. Yes, yeah, no, that's just uh, from my perspective. I think too, in like the songs that I write, I try and capture that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have this song that's going to be coming out called Deception Pass, mm-hmm. and it's all about uh, watching people get split open in half and their guts spilling out and all that shit. Mm-hmm. And um. I think if society's rules all dropped away and we saw it a little bit in 2020, people are going to be brutal with each other mm-hmm. once that veil drops. Yeah. And that's what excites me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is this is what we really are. Mm-hmm. This is what we really want to be. But we have all these rules and all these creature comforts that keep us from behaving in this way. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So that's a good segue too to talk about what else you're working on musically here. Uh, yeah, I'm working on a ton of different stuff. So I got some solo tracks that are going to be coming out either later this year, or earlier, early next year. Um, I recorded three tracks at Blackbird mm-hmm. with uh, my friends uh, 
uh, Teo Holden that I play in with TH3, and then Mike Raseel was playing drums, Teo was playing guitar. So I'm going to be releasing some solo music. Um, I'm primarily known for being a bass player. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I play bass for Josh Norfleet and his solo bands, uh-huh. um, playing bass for Violent Moons now, and mm-hmm. then for TH3. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of what I've just been working on, just gigging, um, getting back out there and starting to do my own stuff, my Mm -hmm. own music. Uh, Because for a long time, I was just kind of like a behind the scenes, you know, in the back kind of guy. Because I also produce as well. Mm -hmm. So um, just like the producer and bass player's mindset is never go for the limelight. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like you're the support role. And um, I had the opportunity to record over at Blackbird, so I took it. Because I've been writing all these songs during the pandemic Mm because I had nothing else to do other than that and watch baseball games. Right, yeah. And that's what I did was I watched baseball and and wrote songs. Yeah. You know, I think too, like all of us get into this even if we don't necessarily seek the limelight because a little part of us wants it too. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why every fucking week I'm talking into a microphone. Yeah. It's because people told me to shut the fuck up my whole life, you Mm -hmm. know? Stop talking. You talk too much. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, glad you have that outlet. Keep doing the great work you're doing in all phases with the Poptimist, with the music, with the insightful conversation in general. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. you too, man. Um, I appreciate it. Absolutely. And now before we do all the closing sign-off stuff, I am going to return the favor from the episode of the Poptimist that I was on, and I'm going to ask you five burning baseball questions, all of which relating to... Whether or not you think these people should be in the Hall of Fame. Okay. So I'm going to start with a controversial one. Barry Bonds. Yes. Yeah, Barry Bonds should absolutely be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Steroids make baseball fun. All these people that act like it's a a pure, like this this, uh, choir boy kind of sport. Barry Bonds did the work. Barry Bonds was a Hall of Famer before the steroids anyway. Yes. That's where I say yes as well. As a former athlete who never took steroids, I do feel cheated by the fact that all these guys did that, you know? But Barry Bonds, it wouldn't have mattered for Barry Bonds. He was going to be a Hall of Famer anyway. He would have still hit the same number of home runs, I think. He he might have hit a little bit less, but he would probably be like right behind Hank Aaron. Mm-hmm. Like he would have got there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Okay. So that's number one. Number two. Going a completely opposite way. Chase Utley. I don't know much about Chase Utley. He was on the Yankees for a little while, right? He was Philly. Phillies was most of his career. He okay, he was he yeah. was a second baseman. Dodgers. He was Phillies and Dodgers, yeah. What is the controversy surrounding him? I can give my, uh, my ill-formed opinion now. Well, you know, just in my opinion, the answer is no. Because you look at a guy like Jeff Kent, who's not in the Hall of Fame yet, you know, who was the greatest power-hitting second baseman perhaps ever, you know. Chase Utley had like five or six really good years, you Mm -hmm. know, and people are making the argument of, oh, well, his war, his war, his war. Okay. But like, how long was he great for, you know, that Phillies run toward the end of the two thousands, he was great. Yeah. And then got beat by the Yankees in 2009. Yeah. And then dropped off and then was on the Dodgers hitting 215 for the last couple years of his career. I don't think Chase Utley's a Hall of Famer personally. I'll I'll side with you on that. You sound more informed than I do. Okay. Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent, he played for the Astros, right? Astros, Giants, Mets in the beginning of his career, Dodgers at the end. Did he ever win a World Series? He did not. He was, I think he was on that Giants team in 02 that went to one, but no, he did not win one. We'll throw him in there. 
Why not? Why not say yes? Yeah, I, I I think Jeff Kent's definitely a Hall of Famer. Again, like when you look at numbers and when you look at what he was able to do, that no other second baseman of that era or really any since or before was able to do. I think he's absolutely in there. Sammy Sosa. Yes. Yeah, I mean he's a he's a he was a great player. I mean you can't think of the '90s baseball without thinking of Sammy Sosa. Yeah, I mean. He and McGuire, the home run race, brought it back. Yeah. It made know? baseball cool again. It did. It did. Because there were those few years after the strike where baseball was not cool. And yeah. Baseball, you know, was definitely, you know, lost public perception to the NFL, to the NBA. You know, of course, you had Jordan and the Bulls doing their thing, really taking a lot of the spotlight. It really did bring baseball back into the forefront. Again, the purist in me, the natural athlete in me is like, and the Cubs fan in me that now doesn't like Sammy Sosa for a bunch of other reasons <laughs> is wants to say no but at the end of the day I don't know that I can deny the guy because of the impact on the sport yeah you know that that's that that's my standpoint and I had a fifth one and it was a pitcher and I'm trying to think of who it was and I'm going to edit this or maybe I won't edit this and I'm just gonna don't edit it don't Fuck edit it. it okay okay let's see let's go with somebody who's still playing Jacob deGrom all said and done. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah? If he stays healthy, yeah, 100%. I mean, he's the most dominant pitcher of his generation, and he's the most dominant pitcher in baseball right now. Mm-hmm. Even on the fucking injured list or disabled list or whatever. Yeah. And has been the most dominant for a few years. Yeah. I think. He's good. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think he'll end up there. You know, I, I I don't think he'll get to, like, 300 wins. I don't think very many people are going to get to 300 wins just with the way the loads are managed right now. But you can't deny that he's one of the greats of his era. Well, I'm curious to see, does he stay with the Mets for his whole career? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think, um, I think he's got a good shot of it, you know? It all depends. It all depends on how they're willing to pony up, you know, the money. Yeah. Are they going to extend him? You know, if he hits free agency, are they going to be able, willing to ext- to re-sign him for the terms that he's going to want? I mean, he's in his 30s now, so you know the back few years of whatever long-term contract he would want would probably not be worth the Mets' while. But yeah, is he's it one still of- going to be? He's not going to be dominant the way he is now or been in years past, but he's still going to be good, right? And you got to think too. There's going to be young pitchers on that ball club that he's going to be able to teach shit to. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think he's a, he's got as good a chance as any to end up on the same club his whole life, you know? Yeah. I, I think so too. Uh, he, he has a good shot at just staying, but you know, like Max Scherzer getting traded. I, right. I would have never necessarily predicted that. Yeah. Or even Trey Turner yeah. in that trade going to the Dodgers. The Dodgers are like the Yankees in the the nineties and the two thousands, early two mm-hmm. thousands now. Or Anthony Rizzo going yes. to the Yankees, which I'm still pretty salty about. Hey, I love it. I, I know you. Yan- do. I'm a Yankees fan, though. Honestly, I love that y'all are taking such good care of my boy. I yeah. really do. Like, thank you for that. Yes. From a Cubs fan to a Yankees fan, I appreciate that because that uh, that was. I imagine it's heartbreaking. That was yeah. soul crushing. I was. You know where I was? I was in the parking lot of the East Room. Like, about to go in for the show we had that night, and I see Rizzo to the Yankees. I'm like, are you kidding me? Uh, yeah, I texted you as soon as I saw it. And I was like, this can't be happening. Like, I was... That kept me up a little bit that night. Like, I didn't care as much about Baez leaving or Bryant. I'm like, don't you trade Rizzo. And they traded Rizzo. And 
Yeah, I just don't really know where the Cubs go from here. I don't know what their plan is. You know, they're trying. You know, they're trying to market Contreras as their big star, but his contract's up after twenty twenty two. So you know, if they have a five hundred ish season at the trade deadline next year, like this year, they'll probably get rid of him. You know, yeah. then we'll just be stuck with Jason Hayward in his one eighty average. But I love Jason Hayward. I do. But man, I don't know about that contract now. I think it's time to. Let him go. Appreciate his impact. For sure. Appreciate his stature as part of that championship club. And maybe let him try to catch on somewhere else, change the scenery. He's had a rough go in Chicago with the fans because of the up and down nature of his performance. Always great clubhouse guy. Great defensive player. Had a decent couple offensive seasons, but I... I think he's just fallen off. Past his prime. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe he latches on somewhere and he, he gets some of that stroke back. But I don't know. It's it's definitely a different, strange era of Cubs baseball, for sure. Anyway, uh, thank you, Taylor Berryman of The Poptimist, coming on the Quinn Spin today. Before I let you go, going to give you a chance to tell people where they can learn more about you. Yes. Yeah, so uh, The Poptimist with Taylor Berryman streaming on all major platforms, Apple, Spotify, wherever, you know, all the different places. Um, you can find me on Instagram, the underscore Poptimist. Mm-hmm. And also I have some new music uh, going to be released. So that's coming out. I'm going to be playing a gig September 8th at the Mockingbird theater down in franklin it's going to be like a grateful dead cover set playing bass on that and then violet moons um playing at the villager on either the 18th or the 19th of september i can't remember what day it is one of those two days though so yeah come check it out um check out all my shit all right make sure you do that make sure you check out the quinn spin two ends in quinn two ends in spin you can find us on spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, anchor stitcher and more also on the socials, Instagram at QuinnSpinOfficial. Also look for us on Facebook and Twitter, even though Facebook's algorithms suck, and it's pretty much pointless to post there at this point. Also, UndergroundMusicCollective.com is our central hub. You'll learn more about the show and all the things we have going on in the UMC ecosystem. You'll also find us on the socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, the UMC 20 playlist on Spotify, which I'm going to be starting back up again for the fall. Get your submissions in. Also, check out live from the 615-615 Fest, by the way, at the East Room, October 2nd, all day event hosted in conjunction with music city movement we have 10 acts it's going to be fire not going to want to miss it it will be the best place to be that weekend we have plenty more shows coming up too go to live from the 615.live to find out what those are watch your back from time featuring timothy miles is our closing theme song i'm gonna let that one do its job right now
Jupin making moves like Madonna And I'm out here being so broke When your kiss cruise me down When I'm getting hot in my head Checking every corner when we're going downtown I just wanna go in the last to rip But you know how to hold me back You know how to slow me down You say that I'm all you need You say that I make you proud You ain't no dozen roses You are the golden words from a Moses We in the river, we gonna roll this You are my star, I hope you know this I don't care what's your back Just know and hold me back